Welcome to episode 186 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? You know, not much. It's a snowy day. <laughs> I, I, it's May. We, we woke up and there was like four inches of snow. I, I, don't, I, I don't like... Even the world is confused about what day and month it is. I mean, we've all been locked in our houses for 20 years now, and nobody knows what day it is. Nobody knows what time it is. And even the atmosphere can't make up its mind about what it wants to do. I was expecting a different kind of build up there. It caught me off guard. Yeah, I'm just, I, I just woke up from a nap. It's Saturday. We usually don't record on Saturdays. So everything's a little different today, but we'll, we'll make it work. We're switching it up. We're all over the place. We I are. love that you disclosed all that stuff. I'm not sure anybody would have actually known. They would have just thought we were as off as always. But I do appreciate that you've provided a little bit more color. Yeah. If anything, maybe we have more of an excuse to be off than normal today. <laughs> maybe that's true. So in getting to our usual fare, how about we do some affirmations and denials? And you, brother, go first. What sure. are you affirming this week? So I am affirming a little exercise that I call eating crow. I'm not the only person that calls it eating crow, but I, I affirm eating crow. So we in the past, and I'm speaking exclusively for myself on this, uh, we in the past have been pretty clear about what we thought of the Mark Jones, John Piper, R. Scott Clark dust up and we took the position um, that uh, Mark Jones and John Piper more or less, and in their own kind of different ways, represented the Reformed tradition. So I'm speaking exclusively for myself. I don't know where Jesse is on this. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of studying, and there's been some additional statements that have come out uh, recently from John Piper that are uh, causing me to sort of rethink my defense or support of him. So I've always maintained that I think that John Piper and Mark Jones are actually saying different things because Mark Jones is a covenant reformed Presbyterian who affirms Westminster Confession, you know, covenant of works, covenant of grace, all of the traditional covenant categories. And John Piper does not. And so when he when he talks about the law and the gospel, he's coming from a different framework right out of the gates, um, which which almost always leads to some some variations. But he recently made a statement. I'm not sure exactly what the video conference was. You know, the, the YouTube video was titled like advice to young men or something. It sounded like a, um, I didn't watch the entire like hour long presentation, but it sounded like it was some sort of like Zoom webinar that they were doing where they were kind of giving advice to young seminary graduates going into the pastorate. And he made the statement uh, in the video that uh, a pastor needs to read their Bible uh, because if they don't read their Bible apart from sermon preparation, that they're on the road to uselessness, which yeah, prop, that's probably true. But then he goes on to say something, and this is not an exact quote, but he goes on to say something like, you shouldn't read your Bible uh, just for sermon prep. You should read your Bible because if you don't, you're going to hell. Which, you know, could could be just sort of like a way to put an emphasis on it. It seems like a strange way to put an emphasis on it. Um, you know, John Piper at times when he's speaking off the cuff has a tendency to sort of make unusual statements. Um, you know, he said something about sexy stones at one point, but right. you know, I, 
Along with this came uh, an episode of the Heidelcast, episode 149. I would encourage everybody to go check it out. And in that episode, R. Scott Clark uh, continues the argument he's been making, but he, he brought to light some elements uh, of John Piper's history and his theology that I was not fully aware of. And I did a little bit of digging and it led me to this article, which was published during this sort of controversy a couple of years ago. I'm sure that I read it, so I'm not exactly sure how I missed this. But he's uh, the article is titled, Does God Really Save Us by Faith Alone? It's dated September 25th, 2017. Uh, you can find it on the uh, Desiring God website. Uh, and he says here, if you substitute other clauses with we are justified, such as we are sanctified, or we will finally be saved at the last judgment, then the meaning of some of these prepositional phrases must be changed in order to be faithful to scripture. For example, in justification, faith receives the finished work of Christ performed outside of us and counted as ours, imputed to us. So, so that sounds totally fine. Everything's great. And then he says, in sanctification, faith receives ongoing power of Christ that works inside of us for practical holiness. Still totally fine. But then this is what he says that that I think, you know, I'm not I'm not finally landed on this, but this is starting to raise concerns and some other uh, men that I really respect theologically who have been studying this as well have we kind of all came to the same conclusion at the same time independently of each other and not really independently because we all kind of started digging again after hearing uh, Scott talk about on the, the Heidelcast. He says, in final salvation at the last judgment, faith is confirmed by the sanctifying fruit it has borne. And we are saved through that faith, fruit and that faith. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so, you know, the, the reason that this jumped out to me and the reason that I'm starting to rethink it, and I need to dig a little bit more, you know, I've got a couple of his books on my reading list now, is he's making a distinction here between two things. He's saying there's faith. And that faith is confirmed by the fruit that it bears, which is just that's just classic Protestant Reformed theology. He goes a little awry when he says that it's sanctifying fruit because we're not sanctified by our fruit. Our fruit is the outflowing of our sanctification. But that that's in the grand scheme of things, that's a minor point. But then he says, and we are saved through that fruit and that faith. And so he's drawing a distinction between the verdict uh, or the acknowledgement of our justification, the acknowledgement of our innocence in the last judgment, which is confirmed and sort of evidenced by the faith and the fruit that we bore as a result of that faith. He's drawing a distinction between that reality, that evidence, and then some other category that he says saved through faith, fruit and faith. And so, you know, if he said... Uh, in the last judgment, uh, faith is confirmed by the sanctifying fruit it bore, and we are saved through that faith. That is totally fine. Um, but he he takes this additional step to say now we're not only are we saved through the faith uh, that we have that is confirmed by fruit, but that fruit itself is somehow saving us as well. And I, I won't go into all the details because this isn't what, you know, this isn't that episode. I don't know that we're ever going to do that episode, but he's drawing on some thought from Daniel Fuller of this idea of a two stage, uh, two stage salvation where justification, the initial imputation of 
Christ's righteousness to us in justification is the first part of salvation. It's the starting point of salvation. He says in other places um, that, that that's important because now all of the work we're doing, we're doing it from a position of God's favor rather than doing it uh, in a position where God is opposing us or something like that. So there's that first stage of, of justification, and he, he wants to affirm, and he does affirm, that that is entirely by imputation. We, we become justified. We, we gain a legal right standing with God because of that uh, faith, because of that imputation through faith. But then at, at the last judgment, if we haven't borne sufficient fruit— and I don't, he doesn't ever define sufficient as far as I can tell. Maybe it just it's just any fruit. I don't, I don't know exactly where he goes with that. But if we haven't borne fruit as a result of that justification, then we will not make it through the last judgment. And, and where this all kind of clicked for me with that statement about not reading your Bible is this now presents a situation where you can have a justified Christian who's received faith, uh, received through faith, the imputed righteousness of Christ, who then does not go on to do these sanctifying actions like reading their Bible every day or praying or any of the other things that Christians ought to do, who does not do those things. So when he reaches the final judgment, he will then end up in hell. So, you know, any one of those statements taken by themselves, abstracted from the other, you know, you might look a little sideways at it and assume yeah, he probably just misspoke, or I'm, I'm sure that's not what he meant. But when you start to see all of these statements peppered throughout his theology in different ways across the years, uh, combined with this glowing endorsement of da one of Daniel Fuller's books, where he outlaw, you know, he he uh, he sort of sets up this whole two stage justification or two stage salvation. Piper endorsed that and said that, you know, that Daniel Fuller was absolutely right. So you start to take all that together. It starts to paint this really troubling picture. So I, I haven't quite gotten to the point where I'm, I'm of a settled conviction of, of where this is at. And, you know, I, I'm with for sure with Scott Clark on this, like John Piper's a Christian. He loves the Lord. I don't think he's going to hell. I don't think he's a, he's a false teacher in like the capital F false teacher sense. But this is this is something that's very troubling and, and I need to do more research. But I'm I'm affirming eating crow because I think, you know, we've talked about this before. We talked about it with the confirmation bias stuff last week. When you when you come to a, a situation, you realize that you have either spoken out of turn or you were wrong or you even may have been wrong. And you made a strong statement, especially when you made it publicly. You know, there was times that I almost kind of ridiculed people who were speaking against John Piper in this that, you know, I really wasn't understanding everything that was put being put on the table in the same way. I was kind of assuming, you know, I've never been a huge fan of John Piper personally. Like he hasn't, he, I'm not one of those guys who was, he was super you know influential in my theology or anything like that. I'm just, he's always just been there, but I had this bias to assume that he was not teaching something that was contrary to scripture. And it, at least right now, my impression is that I think that probably was not a correct bias. So I'm affirming eating crow because I think it's a good exercise for us to do that when we've gone out of our way to make a statement and we find out that it could be incorrect or that it is, it, you know, it's, I think it glorifies God to go back and clarify or redact or retract that statement. Right on. That's good. So what are you affirming? <laughs> well, let me say this though, just in response to that. If that's in fact what he's saying, at least he's being really forthright with that. Because honestly, and we've said this before too, but that is, in my opinion, just kind of the watered down, modern evangelical expression of yeah. faith. You can call it a bunch of different things. And it goes by all these different names that really mean the same thing, whether you call it 
increasing surrender or second baptism or crisis point. Yeah. It's all the same craziness. So yeah. at least he's not, he might actually understand what he's saying better than most, which in and of itself is some form of affirmation because at least he's articulating it fairly clearly. Yeah. Or if that's in fact what he means, because I think there's a lot of people that they use this language, they're implying they're using it. They don't even know what they're saying in the sense that they just think they're they're What they're doing is they're impounding into their preaching or their teaching. Yeah. Like different degrees or hierarchy of Christian faith or convertedness. And so at least, and I don't know where he's out on that. I'm with you. At least he's just saying it. And then we can actually have dialogue about it as opposed to somebody kind of trying to confront that and saying, no, that's exactly what I mean. And you're in to say in response, well, that's not what you're saying. Right. So hopefully he's all aligned there and we'll get some more clarity on that. Yeah. And I should add this, you know, my perspective on where Mark Jones stands has not changed one iota. Um, And I I have the benefit of, of having interacted directly with uh, Mark on this and and spoken with him, you know, directly through Facebook. Um, I had, it's not like I called him on the phone or, or had like coffee with him or anything, but you know, we chatted quite a bit about this and I was able, able to ask him those clarifying questions about it. Right. Uh, and I, I'm a hundred percent confident that Mark's position represents, I think at sometimes maybe a little bit on the more, uh, I don't know if you want to call it, if you want to call it legalistic, but on sort of that more strict Puritan understanding of the role of works in, uh, the, the progress towards heaven, if you want to call sure. it the path of yes. righteousness, I think he maybe represents something on a little bit more of the strict side than maybe you or I, or especially something, something you might hear out of like Westminster and Escondido or something like that, like a Mike Horton or a, or Scott Clark obviously is in a different spot, but I, I think he, you know, he's well within the boundaries of reformed orthodoxy. I think that the differences between uh, Mark Jones and John Piper that I've always maintained are there. I'm beginning to think that they're more significant. And, you know, you and I have have just hammered over the last 185 episodes on the fact that sanctification must be conceptualized as a work of God. It it has to be a monergistic work of God that the spirit does in us that then results in these good works that, that flow out of that state of sanctification and that, that act or that work of sanctification that God is doing in us. Because even in this one statement, if you drop the phrase sanctifying fruit and just say fruit, even that pushes it more towards a, a, a traditional Orthodox presentation, a traditional reformed Orthodox presentation. Because right. if you, if this, if the fruit is not somehow sanctifying then you can read that and say, well, this, the, you're saved through that fruit in an evidentiary fashion in that you're, you know, the Westminster Confession says that at the resurrection, believers are openly acknowledged and acquitted, right? There, there's some element that our works play in that acknowledgement and acquittal that, that God, God acknowledges us. And part of that acknowledgement is pointing to the work that he's wrought in our life, the good work that, that his spirit has wrought in our life through our faith. That's orthodox. But when that fruit becomes some somehow a source or an origin of our sanctification, and then you say that we're saved through it, then the converse is that if you don't bear fruit, you're not being sanctified. You haven't been sanctified. And if you're not sanctified, then you certainly will never be glorified. So th- there's, a, there's a difference that happens there if you get that wrong. And it just underscores what we've been talking about you know, for the last several years now is getting your theology from the, from the base of the pyramid, right. And working your way up is really important because little things like that, like a single word out of place 
can change what your sentence means. And if you say that sentence long enough in the wrong way, whatever it is, whether it's about the Trinity or whether it's about soteriology or even eschatology, you know, all this plays into it. If you say the wrong thing for long enough, you're going to start to believe the wrong thing. So it's that that's why we talk about the importance of creeds and confessions and catechisms. So, yeah, so I, I think... I need to do more research. I need to think more carefully through this. There's several books that I've got on my list that I need to read. I need to go back through some of the the arguments that were being made by Scott Clark in, during the day that I, if I'm being really honest, I kind of dismissed out of hand. Um, I, you know, some of that was because because I had spoken with Mark and Mark was telling you know you know Piper and I are on the same page. Um, I dismissed a lot of what uh, what Clark was saying because he was going after mostly after Jones as almost like a proxy for Piper. So I need to do more research, but I wanted to make sure that I, I brought that out in a timely fashion. So don't don't take my word for it, folks. Check out, you know, what Scott says on the Heidel class, Heidel cast uh, 149, uh, read Piper's work. And then uh, as always compare what, you know, what they've said and what we say here to, to the pages of scripture. Right. Because the ultimate question really in this instance and all others is who does the saving? So mm-hmm. my guess is that if you were to ask that question to Piper, that he's he's going to clarify that statement in such a way that would probably more it's either going to tilt toward orthodoxy or it'll just fall into orthodoxy. And right. what's interesting here is we're certainly I don't think saying that the average Christian, the person who's studying and following after the Lord Jesus Christ and seeking fidelity with the scriptures and the truth in the scriptures we should all try to articulate our faith and it's okay to make mistakes as we try to articulate that. In fact, the whole point of discussing it and conceptualizing it and bringing it together in your own tongue from your own head is in a way testing to make sure you understand properly what the scriptures mean and allowing others, inviting them in to provide that kind of critique so that you are always kind of funneling everything down into something that's more precise and more accurate. With that said, this is not that case in the sense that obviously what Piper is trying to communicate here is something specific. And I don't think anybody would doubt that by looking just at the course of his preaching, he has a particular frame that he usually approaches everything with. And that is a very passionate frame. And there's no doubt he's trying to communicate something. And perhaps in doing so, he's swinging the pendulum the other way so as to make his point. And even grammatically here, I'm not exactly sure what he's going after with that. Like you said, the sanctifying fruit is that describing the fruit is an adjective of the fruit or is implying that in a noun that the fruit itself is what does partially the saving. It's all very convoluted in a sense, but there's no doubt as like a theologian and a pastor and a well-known one that he's trying to do something here. So it's it's not, that's not the average person's probably experience or position. In terms of like the, whatever you say is going to be, you know, like judged and, and torn apart. So we shouldn't be afraid to try to articulate this, but it's, it's certainly helpful to understand what anybody means because words do mean something. But my gut is that there's a lot going on there. Yeah. And he's trying to do something. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not almost agnostic toward it in the sense that like we should just try to understand what he means there, but I, I it's hard to even understand. Like you said, you're doing the right thing by trying to take that against and with the other things that he's written and said, really though, the only way to know for certain is to say, hey, for somebody to say, Hey, this is what you said here. What did you mean by that? Right? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's been, that's been one of the difficulties and struggles through that controversy a couple of years ago. As far as I know, Piper didn't ever directly respond to the 
I don't want to call them accusations or, or charges, but he didn't ever really respond to the statements that were being so. made. I don't remember seeing anything. And part of the problem is, you know, like Desiring God is now this like organization. So like, right. yeah, John Piper's Twitter, I guarantee you, John Piper's like 190 years old. So he's not tweeting his own stuff. I guarantee it. <laughs> but it's still got his name on it. And, and you know. I think what you're saying is is smart to point out that, yeah, the average Christian is going to say things and, and make theological statements that are wrong probably almost every day if you're talking about theology on any sort of regular right, basis. Right. That is very different than someone who has a decades-long publishing career and has consistently, yes. you know, consistently stated the same things. Uh, obviously, this is hearsay because you know there's no documentation of this. Scott Clark on that, that episode states that he had a conversation with uh, John, you know, a couple years ago, I don't know when it was, but he had a conversation with, with Dr. Piper and had said like, well, how's your theology changed since you were in seminary? And, you know, Piper said it, it hasn't. So as far as what he's saying, and you can, you can trace this theology all the way. And that work has been done. I'm not going to rehash it, but you can trace these kinds of theological statements all the way back 20, 30, 40 years in, in right. his sermons and things. So it's not, this is very different than a, an off the cuff, you know, non-scripted statement that someone makes that's wrong. Like when you said that grace was injected, right? That That's a Roman Catholic way to talk, but it wasn't <laughs> what you meant. It was just a miss, you know, misspeaking. I said that a body of divinity was written by Thomas Botson, uh, Boston, and it's written by Thomas Watson. Like, like slip of the tongue or, or just it making happens. mistakes right. happen. But when you've right. got something that's consistently happening over the course of a decades long publishing and preaching ministry, that's a very different scenario. I agree. And again, here he's crafting a particular message. It mm-hmm. was no doubt thoughtful. He was putting the pieces together in a way that was measured yeah. and premeditated. And when you and I speak like this, you know, well, maybe we should say this as like an affirmation for theological training generally. The whole point, not the whole point, that's a weird way to say it. See, so already making mistakes. I, part of the whole process is that high, having high, of course, theology is going to lead us to high and supreme doxology. Right. That should really be the point. But above and beyond that is kind of like a way to emphasize that and to spur one another on toward that kind of good learning and doxology. When you have and spend the time in this kind of theological precision, what it means then is the natural muscle memory of you converting your thoughts from the scriptures into words spoken in a grammatical form will be by nature more precise because there'll be some type of built in memory there. It'll just be what becomes normative and natural. So we spoke a lot that about, see, I can't even talk in this episode. We spoke a lot about that with respect to hearing and testing. So you hear a sermon, you read an article, and you think to yourself, there's something that's just not right about that. I can't put my finger on it, but I know there's something that doesn't sit right with me. But we should also be concerned with when we speak and actually articulate and put together thoughts and ideas, is the same thing happening? You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's, there's almost, we, we fall into the same wonderful, comfortable patterns that have been set together, rooted deep in our minds by way of studying theology and having that good, strong base. So that when we speak about what salvation is, it actually comes out in a way that's comfortably articulate and solid and accurate, where we're not always fumbling around. As we grow, we'll always fumble through concepts that we're learning, but of course, to be able to teach something, explain something is to know it intimately. Yeah. So we should be getting to that point. And that's good practice for evangelism. It's good practice for common conversation. Somebody, even if it's the, the most like qualified Sunday school graduate Christian needs to be encouraged by something that you should say to them on this day. 
And the goal, of course, is that whatever you'd say would be rooted in theological precision. Yeah. Yeah. This is the last thing I'll say to kind of duck, ducktail off that or to dove, dovetail, ducktail. I don't Did know. Did you say ducktail? Ducktails. To, to follow, <laughs> to follow after that. Um, you know, that that's why memorizing and studying the catechisms is so important. Right. For we, sure. We've talked about this like theological spider sense. We kind of joke around about how sometimes you're not even sure why something is wrong. You can just sort of feel it's wrong. Right. And, and the reason that is, is because if you've built a grid in your head of, of good theological statements that you've memorized and, and the scripture obviously is the first and foremost, like sometimes you just you can just feel that this is contrary to scripture and you might even be able to sort of start to pull out vague impressions of where in the scripture this isn't right. But the catechisms are helpful because they give you language that you can just all of a sudden you go, all right, sanctification yes. is the work of God's free grace. Sanctification comes by my fruit. Like those, one of these things is not like the other, which one of right. them am I going to pick? You know, or this idea that we're saved through works at the last day. Well, you know, at their, at, at the resurrection, the believer is openly acquitted and acknowledged by God. Like you get these, these frameworks and these, these phrases that you can readily compare to what's being said without a lot of like in-depth analysis to sort of get a sense of whether something is right or not. So, so I think that's enough for that. You know, we we've gone over it a lot and, and I'm sure there'll be more discussion to be had as I, I do more research and more thoughts come up, but I, I'm glad, I'm glad to be in a world where, we have access to theological information where we can actually study and, and come to conclusions and then realize we were wrong and come to new conclusions. Um, you know, so I, I think that that's, I think that's a good thing. So enough about me saying, we're not going to do a whole episode about this. And then 28 <laughs> minutes later, what are you affirming? That's all helpful though. I think people need to hear that. We need to be thinking about that kind of stuff. And I mean, to your credit, you are following through with your denial on the cognitive bias thing. We're like all full steam ahead on that train. So you are following right on those tracks. And I affirm that. All right. Uh, My other affirmation is one that comes with like a fair bit of melancholy. So let me say it this way. And this is almost sounds like a contradiction to some of what we just talked about, but I actually see it as a contrariety. And that is, I think sometimes in reform circles, because we know what we believe and we're very convicted in that belief. And of course we understand it to comport with what the scripture teaches us that we tend to be proud that we read and we listen very narrowly. And I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I am saying, I think it's helpful though, to continue to read and to listen to those who are in the Christian faith, who we know to be Orthodox, but at the same time might have slightly different theological perspectives in different areas, especially in open-handed matters. Yeah. And so uh, this affirmation is of a ministry that's been very, I don't want to say pivotal because it does have often different theological perspectives, but in terms of its evangelical influence, in terms of its commitment to the gospel and its willingness to see it go into hostile places, it's for me at least almost unparalleled. And so it's a ministry that has been a unique part of my life because so much of, of my passion for sharing the gospel, for understanding it and bringing about a strong apologetic that is both intellectual and felt comes from this man. So I'm affirming Ravi Zacharias. And the reason why it comes with a, a fair bit of melancholy is, is many yeah. may know that he was being treated for cancer. And it was just announced just at the end of this past week. That whereas there was some hope that the cancer was being beaten back, 
that it turns out that it is terminal. And so the medical community has done all that they can do for him. And he was very forthright about that. And so he's returned home to live out his days with his family as the number that God allows. And so I want to affirm both what I think he embodies with respect to the gospel and his passion for it. He spent almost 50 years as an itinerant minister. And that commitment alone of being away from family, of being in hotel rooms, of being in a multiple time zones and going out and preaching is exceptional bar none. It's just an amazing example. But beyond that, I, I think so much of what he's written is so helpful to every Christian by way of building them up and informing them and giving them a certain sense of courage and bravery with which to speak the truth, knowing that it comes from a reason that this is a reasonable faith as Paul would talk about. So I'm affirming him generally. And specifically, I would say if you're unfamiliar with Ravi Zacharias, uh, go look up rzim.org, which is his ministry. But in particular, if you like podcasts, I would recommend the Just Thinking podcast or Let My People Think. Those are both fantastic. And then he has written an amazing number of books on an amazing number of subjects. In fact, for whatever reason, many years ago, when I became interested in what he had to say, I actually said I was going to read everything he has ever written. So he is one of the few authors that I have a strong affinity with and a connection to, I feel, because I've read so much of what he's written. And if I were to re- recommend just one book to kind of start that journey, it would be Can Man Live Without God? So this is, you know, I'm filled with melancholy because, you know, it's it's always hard when the saints of the Lord are confronted with affliction. And yet it seems that the ones who are that God has uniquely equipped to best bear up underneath that kind of weight are the ones that are asked to shoulder that burden. And I see in him just an amazing attitude with everything that's happening. And he's not unlike many Christians all over the world who are confronted with this type of thing and this particular disease. And so I I just want to give a little bit of testimony and encourage others to go out and be a part of what he's done and what he's taught and what he's preached, because I think you will find it encouraging and equipping. Yeah, you know, uh, Rabbi Zacharias has not been all that influential in my my life and in my theological development, but his ministry is definitely one that uh, I think bears bears the weight of the test of time. I mean, there's been um, you know there's been controversial moments over the years, controversial things that have happened. That's just the way that it is when you're in in the public eye, and and right. you know his theology is not perfect, his life has not been perfect. Um, his ministry is not perfect, but he he definitely is someone who is who is and will always be radically sold out uh, and committed for the Lord's business. Um, even if we disagree how he goes about that business, you know, Paul Paul says I think it's Philippians, but he basically says like, yeah, other people are preaching the gospel for for motivations I disagree with, but the gospel is being preached, so we should rejoice in that. So, and you know, if you think about like Nabil Qureshi, like very similar, right. very similar life, very similar end of life, uh, very similar, you know. Their, their ministries were intimately connected. So, yeah, I, I read that the other day and it made me sad. But, you know, he's got a testimony and and there are many, many people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the work that the Holy Spirit has done through Ravi Zacharias and his ministry. And his legacy will carry on, like his ministry will carry on and more, many more will come to faith because of it. So I, I'm, I'm on the same page with you. Yeah, and that's why I think it's an important resource, even for people who either they see him on the fringe because it's not part of their normal reading or their normal diet and reform theology. And, and again, I totally understand that. I think what's unique about him 
is his underpinnings and coming from like a philosophical and, and I would say like distinctly intellectual perspective. Yeah. And I think it's important to understand the arguments that he makes for Christianity because you would certainly be blessed by those in terms of just having normal conversations with people. Because what I appreciate about that ministry is and I say this about him like tongue in cheek, like he never met a question he didn't like. Yeah. I mean, in this, because they were not afraid to engage and take on the hard questions. And in fact, if you just want to like go not waste is not the wrong, is not the right word. If you want to go and like spend a couple hours on YouTube, just Google him in the open forum and you'll hear people ask him and challenge him with, with really ridiculous and harsh things. And his approach I think is worth us understanding because he's loving and kind, but firm. Yeah. And reformed Christians in particular sometimes are not all three of those things at the same time. Yeah. So it's really just a wonderful example. And I think it is a good challenge to us to understand that he, he certainly came from a tradition that was uh, Arminian in nature. And so you're going to hear a lot of that in some of what he says. But I think we'd also all agree that all Christians, all Christians who have been radically uh, saved by Christ who are regenerated are reformed. Right. <laughs> it's just a matter of degrees. And, it's, and that's not to say anything about the, the, the salvation. I'm just saying like, in terms of understanding theology, yeah. you know, we talked about this before, like, and he has this wonderful commitment to evangelism that is predicated on the spirit doing the work. So often, once you get to the level that he was at, where basically you say something and, and people will, you know, fawn all over that. There's often this impression that like there is an element in what's being said that is doing the converting. And yeah. he was always very clear about the role of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, yeah. even in all apologetics, no matter how well the argument was crafted, he would often say something like behind every question is a question or here. He's always concerned about the person, not just merely dismantling or destroying you know, stupid things, even though sometimes what people would ask would be just downright stupid. He almost tongue in cheek, be able to dismantle that and bring some levity into his explanation that would really cause the person who is antagonistic to come under a sense of appreciation for what he was saying. That was really distinct. Yeah. And so uh, th he's just a unique character. He really is a unique character. And yeah. so there is a fair amount of sadness in this news. And yet I can't help but think that he, at the same time that he's setting probably everything aside and determining what next steps are next, that he is a bit rejoicing. And I think that this is something about, again, his character. So if all I can do from this affirmation is get people to just kind of maybe look him up real quick and maybe read something he's written or listen to a podcast, I would consider that a great victory because I, I know that, again, we sometimes read and listen very narrowly. And so it's it's nice to get out a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Get out yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And and you know what? He He's not gone yet. And so, so pray right. for his life, yes. pray for his yes. ministry and his family. Um, you know, we're, we're both committed uh, cessationists, but God still heals. Um, and e even apart from the kind of outward manifestation of God's power, there are people that cancer just disappears and the medical community doesn't understand why. So, so it's, it's not, it's not over yet, but I think that, you know, he, he's, being very wise and very, I think, mature in his faith in recognizing that, um, apart from a miracle, that this is all there is. And, right. um, but, but I, I know, and I've heard him speak enough that he's hoping for a miracle, I'm sure. And sure. he, you know, that that's something God can do. So pray for him, pray for his family. Um, but yeah, check out his material. I, I fully agree with that affirmation. Okay. Awesome. Well, let's, can we do denials really fast? Can yes. we do this quick? My, right, my denial is super quick. I'm just denying 2020. Like, 
let's all go into stasis and like just get over and just get to 2021 because like it's it's only may and it's already been a terrible rough year like we got we got a yeah. pandemic we got we got murder hornets in the northeast or northwest <laughs> it's it's may may 9th and it snowed this morning um you know we're gonna run out the wendy's is taking hamburger off the menu because they don't have any beef it, really it's, in some places, yeah, they've actually removed. I think it's like preemptive because I went to the store the other day and bought ground beef, and I, it wasn't even that expensive. So, uh, you okay. know, like it, it's just been a bad year. Like it's just yeah, it's, it's just been, been a bad year. So there's not anything more to say about that. I'm just denying 2020. Let's just let's just get past it. It's been rough. I thought at first you were referring to like is that that the ABC News? Yeah, that program? old school news show. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that's what you were talking about. Knowing ABC, I probably would deny that show too. But that's not what I was referring to. <laughs> That's great. Um, you've, I mean, we're in too deep. We can't make it short. Yeah. I have to ask, have you seen this, this like short video online of the praying mantis eating the murder hornet? I have. And it's, it's, it's disgusting, but also oddly satisfying. Yes. Amazing though. Right? Like the, not only how quickly you guys, everybody's got to go look this up because it's just grotesque in a beautiful kind of way. Not only does the the praying mantis like just grab this thing so fast, but what I love is just eats the head first, like goes yeah. after the face. <laughs> yeah. Well, have you seen the video of the Japanese honeybees killing the the murder hornet? Yeah. So Jap Japanese honeybees have they, I mean they're obviously they're talking about this in terms of evolutionary science, but have have developed this defense against the murder hornet. So that they're called murder hornets because primarily. My understanding is because they they just are like serial killers of honeybees like they yeah, they, exactly. they invade a honeybee nest. They cut off all their heads and then they like carry the carcasses back to their babies to eat. But like so, you, you know, like a beekeeper will come back to their beehive and find like a million bees with their heads ripped off. So right. so Japanese honeybees, what they'll do is they'll bait them into coming into the hive. And then they'll dogpile on it and they'll buzz their wings really fast to, to like increase the temperature and they boil the insides of the, the murder hornet alive. Like, so if we could like figure out how to, I'm a little gun shy of teaching European honeybees how to do that because like, that's how we end up with like, uh, a, like murderous honeybees boiling at people alive. Like it's 2020. So like that's within the realm of possibility. But like, if we could figure out somehow how to apply that, maybe global warming will take care of this for us. It'll like raise the temperature, like just a couple degrees, and the murder hornets will all die. <laughs> Again, I never know where we're gonna go, but I always love where we end up. Yes. What about you? What are you denying? <laughs> well, my, mine is also quick enough. The natural kind. Uh, I'm denying. Uh, like a birds in the morning and um we, we like to we like to open up the windows uh, when we can of course and there's nothing greater than sleeping with the windows open where it's just like nice and cool you know you get that nice 65 degree temperature set by god himself and uh I, we have a lot of birds for whatever reason where we live i actually like when you wake up in the morning and, and it's like you're snow white and you can hear the gentle chirping of birds that totally down with the denial actually comes from the fact that I, I've traced this. I've actually been doing a study over the last several weeks. In the morning, there's a large, tall bush outside one of our second floor windows here. And the same male cardinal comes and perch on that bush. And what I can only interpret in bird speak, just yells to the entire neighborhood like an old man. Yeah, it is, seems he's right. He's so 
loud. And I, I don't know if he's like just trying to get a wife. I, I don't know what he's doing, but every morning at about 5.15, there is, I call him the alarm bird. Like he will go off and it's like this weird kind of shrill, shrieking cry. It's very distinct and very unique. And if I get up quietly and go to the window and take a look, it's, I mean, maybe it's not the same bird. I don't know. Maybe they take turns, but it's definitely a cardinal. <laughs> And he's definitely crying out hardcore. So I don't know like whether to feel compassion because maybe something horrible has happened in his life. He's looking for a lost love. He's looking for a friend. I don't know. Or maybe he's just shaking his wing at the world and he's just yelling and he keeps doing it atop this bush. That's really close to my window. Yeah. We used to have a woodpecker. You're familiar with the house we live in because you grew up here. So we're up on the third floor and you know there's like a slanted roof and there's an overhang. And for whatever reason, there was a woodpecker who decided that his his new favorite thing to do was to get on that overhang and like hammer his beak into that <laughs> into that overhang. And first of all, it's bad for the building. But like that overhang is like inches from our head where we sleep. And so one day I actually went out there and I sprayed him with wasp spray because that was the only thing I had. <laughs> oh my God. That was the only thing I had that could like reach that distance to like get him. He never came oh. back. I hope he didn't die. I hope I didn't kill the bird. <laughs> but I was like, you stupid bird, get off of my house. You stupid bird. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's amazing how sinful we are. Like, isn't this just total depravity? Because... In one sense, I love the birds. In another sense, when they inconvenience me, then all of a sudden I find them so disagreeable that I want to deny against them. But it's just it's just this guy. But again, maybe I really need to be more compassionate. I, no, I can't obviously. No, I, I took dominion on that woodpecker with that bug spray. <laughs> if he died, he died. But I, I hope he didn't. Woodpeckers are pretty birds. He just found a bad spot. But was yeah, it a big one or a little one? It was one of the big ones, like one of the one of the big ones that's like the size of a like a like a pigeon or something. Oh, I thought you were gonna say like a Cessna. Yeah, they they can get pretty large actually, and then they're almost a little bit scary when they're yeah. big. Oh yeah, if they wanted to hurt you, they could do some damage before you could figure out what to do about it. Yeah, come at me, bro. <clears throat> well, speaking of coming at you, bro, let's let's get to the topic here with some reform <laughs> yeah. preaching cast. Well, I, yeah, that's true. Well, fortunately, I think this is actually a, a really good chapter based on everything we've talked about so far, <laughs> because it's a little bit light in its own way. And of course, we're still making our way through reform preaching by Dr. Joel Beakey. We're in chapter 18, which is entitled 19th Century Preachers. And we got three of them. We got Alexander, McShay and Ryle. And so I figure let's just uh, kind of maybe speak to a little bit of each of them, maybe something that was kind of thrown out to us from the text because again, he's, he's doing such a great job of just, I think kind of trying to compartmentalize how, and, and something about this is like the full testimony of what he's talking about. This idea that throughout all of history, God is bringing about specific preachers and teachers that are unique to the age. There's no accident here that the personalities, the temperaments of these men are uniquely suited to the environments in which they live, which is because God has ordained them to be in that exact place. And so I've just been loving seeing how it's almost like he almost says like, hey, this was happening here. But luckily, these guys yeah. were, were around to preach. And I mean, he's certainly not saying it that way. I'm emphasizing that. But he's just kind of showing us the wonderful foreordination of God is superintending will and the way in which he providentially is, is placing these guys in um, the situations where they need to be. So uh, let's start with, I mean, what I can only say is like a super sweet name, Archibald Alexander. Yeah. Yeah. Archibald Alexander, you know, people I'm sure are familiar with him. He, you know, there's, there's this movement in the 19th century called the Princeton theology, old Princeton theology. 
And Old Princeton theology represents kind of the height of like distinctly American academic Presbyterianism. So, you know, if you were to if you were to look at um, American Presbyterian systematic theologies, you're going to run into people like uh, Charles Hodge, uh, Dabney, Shedd. Like there's these people who are in the orbit of Princeton theology, but are distinctly American. It's not necessarily, um, you know, Scottish preachers that have have grown up and become, you know, have come over and, and started to teach in America. And, you know, Archibald Alexander was born in the United States. So he, even though he had uh, a history and a background, a heredity in uh, Scottish Irish theology, he still was a, a homegrown American theologian. And what I really thought was interesting about his inclusion here is that Alexander is not primarily known as a preacher. Like he, he's right. he's sort of a different. He's in a different category. He's actually really similar to like a William Perkins, whose primary contribution to the subject of preaching is in the education of preachers. So he was certainly a, he was certainly a, a good preacher in his own right. But in order to even find, or I suppose he probably could have picked other sermons, but to to identify a sermon that kind of exemplifies uh, Alexander's preaching, he actually goes to a sermon from before Alexander was a professor. So like he goes to his younger years and pulls out a sermon to, to sort of exemplify his preaching. And, you know, Princeton in our day is like this bastion of liberal thought. Liberal theology, liberal politics, liberal everything. But Princeton really was, you know, at this time, it was like the central Presbyterian seminary in in the country. It was was really all there was until Westminster came around, you know, uh, probably 60, 70 years after this. Um, this was really all it was. So I, I appreciated his inclusion here, even if I was a little bit baffled at why he was included. Yeah, he's a little bit unique. This is kind of like the traditional Sesame Street, which one of these guys is not like yeah. the other. And the thing that really jumped out to me that I thought was apropos for our own age was I loved how Beaky, in referencing that sermon that you were talking about, he, he was drawing out in particular how... Alexander would focus on like the difference between the causes of the two kinds of faith and the natures they possess and the effects they produce, which incidentally is right in line with your affirmation from earlier. Because what I thought was really helpful is he talks about the cause of faith and he's distinguishing between living and dead faith. So it's interesting to, to me just to start with that. He's not talking about faith and no faith, but living in dead faith, which right. I think is actually a really helpful nuance because he goes on to explain that a living faith is produced by the spirit of God. Nobody would disagree there. Dead faith is produced merely by exertions of human nature without the assistance of the spirit of God. And he goes on because he's preaching to Christians to force some kind of self-assessment of where you're at with respect to those two terms as he's defined them. Because he emphasizes that the man with dead faith thinks he has the power to believe in Christ. And I thought in reading that, wow, there's so much of preaching today that is right in that line. Whether it's like distinctly or purposely Arminian or not, this idea that somehow we meet God halfway, we come with our hands, we elevate ourselves to the place of the deserving poor, we come empty. But even all of that smacks of dead faith. And I love that distinction because many people would say, no, I have faith here. Here I'm coming. I went to the altar call. I did this thing. I finally made sense to me. 
I somehow was able to wrap my brain around it. And so now I want to accept, invite, whatever verb you want to use to explain that you somehow welcomed God into your life under your own volition, even if partially. That is a dead faith. And I love that distinction. Yeah. And, and you know, what I was impressed with, and you know, this, it's hard to tell. One of the things that that's difficult when you're reading an assessment of someone's sermons or a, a, like a recounting of someone's sermon versus the sermon itself is exactly how much of it is, um, you know, the assessor or the commentator and how much is the original sermon. But right. the the amount of depth that is pulled out in this sermon in, in terms of theological precision and presentation, um, you know, I don't I don't remember seeing anywhere and I'm just browsing through now. I don't see anywhere where like the specific text he was preaching on is highlighted, but you know, he, he pulls out like six or seven points just on this difference between dead faith and living faith. You know, I think, um, you know, he starts off with talking about the cause of the living faith, the nature of the living faith. And then he goes on to talk about the effect of the living faith, which is really important. And, And again, this is exactly kind of the thing we're talking about with John Piper and then he goes on, and, and it's funny because uh, he actually notes in here that, like, Archibald Alexander recognized that, like, he was running out of time, so he had to, like, rush through his other points. So there's <laughs> right. a certain, there's a level of humanity that you see when you're reading these points. Now, personally, as I've I've been reading this book, and I've done a little bit of time of, like, looking at their sermons outside of reading this book when I find a figure I'm really interested in. There's a humanizing element of reading these sermons that not only humanizes kind of these heroes of the faith, like reading John Calvin's sermons, what we have of them is humanizing. Like you see the mistakes. You know, I joked around when we were doing Micah cast about how there's one spot in Calvin's commentary where he's like halfway through a verse. And then, you know, you can tell it was some some student transcribing his lectures that thought they were funny and like includes one he wrote, like wrapped up the day. I was like, well, I can't continue for the rest of the day. So we'll pick it up tomorrow. Like there's a human element to these sermons. And I think the other effect of it, other than, you know, beyond humanizing these figures that I'm familiar with, it also gives me more compassion and grace for my own pastor. You yes, know, I've, well I've commented said. before, your father is a very steady preacher. Like he's very, um, it's very rare that I walk out of the sermon and I'm like blown away by a sermon where I like, uh, that was the most amazing thing I've ever heard. But I actually don't recall ever walking out of a service going, man, that was a stinker. Like your dad is just a very consistent preacher. Like you get the same thing week in, week out. And that's great. Even, right. even through like this coronavirus thing, you know, like it's the same presentation. Like he's just so seasoned that you get the same thing every week. But the few times that I have identified something in his preaching where I'm like, Ugh, I don't really like that. Like reading these people that are larger than life and seeing that like they encounter the same things. Like Alexander mistimed his sermon and he had to skip over a couple points or rush through them because he was running out of time. Like that's something that I think is valuable to read. It's the same as reading like good Christian biographies where you see some of the warts of our heroes. It's just good to sort of help us see those things. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you. So let's then, because of how our time has played out in this particular episode, let's go on then to Robert Murray McShay. And I have to start by asking, have you ever done his Bible reading plan? I have. The first time I ever completed a full Bible reading plan was the machine uh, reading plan. So really, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've done it too. Yeah, McShane is is probably 
the most well-known and at the same time least well-known because of it uh, for his Bible plan. Everybody knows the name of that, but I doubt anybody who... I, I doubt most people who have done the Machine reading plan could tell you his first name because that's all they know of him. That's but true. Robert Murray McShane was this figure in Scotland that has this really almost tragic ministry story, right? He's this young guy. He He is passionate about the gospel. He's passionate about pastoral and pulpit ministry. And it, it really, in a lot of ways, it really costs him his life because, because of the way that he pours himself out for the gospel. And we'll talk about it. He really gives his life, not in the sense that he was murdered for his faith or martyred for his faith, but in the sense that he poured, he poured himself out so much that he died at a young age as a result of it. Right. Yeah. It was not just the cumulative effect of somebody who was like constantly on the go, which he was, but also that he was literally willing to put himself in harm's way, especially during times of disease, for instance, to be with his congregation, to visit those who are part of his community and to continue to preach. Like this was a guy that was like, just did not rest. I mean, he really was in every way thinking, how can I serve and love others more? And what do I need to do to be doing that? And it was not in a way that we're sometimes we, we feel like a compulsion, a guiltiness. I really should be doing something or I am so blessed in this way. This was somebody who was so radically changed by the gospel message itself that this is, I think, the epitome of being saved for good works and not by good works. Yeah. He just did all these things out of a sense of love toward his savior. And so because of that, it put him at a place where his health absolutely suffered for. I mean, when you read even outside of what's what Beaky wrote here, if you read more about him, it really is amazing. It was almost like a guy who, even in the midst of sickness, in the midst of things where people were saying to him, you're working too much, too hard, this is having impact on your health. It was almost as if he didn't completely disregard that, but he thought it of so little account because there was so much that he wanted to do in the spiritual realm. And so he's willing to sacrifice his physical reality to do that. Yeah, and you know, I think there are times where... um, just as I said, like some of this stuff is really admirable, but it's also something we can learn from, right? Because right. McShane um, probably could have had a longer ministry had he taken better steps to preserve his own health. And and this is where I think it can be a little bit controversial at times. There's nothing wrong with preserving your own health. In fact, we're commanded to in the Ten Commandments to, to, to preserve our own health, right? The commandment against murder is broader than just don't kill someone else. It includes the idea that we're going to take steps to preserve our own health and the lives of our neighbors. And, you know, it's interesting because you don't often hear about pastors that were injured in a gymnastics accident. And that's not (laughs) something, I mean, that's not something I would have even thought of or, or known, but, but you know, he was this guy who he was this young guy. I also don't really think of Scotland as this place where they do gymnastics. I, I don't know why. I just never put oh, that gymnastics together. Oh, gymnastics are so hot Apparently, there. that's like the thing. But, you know, he was injured in this accident, right? He, he he was doing gymnastics as like his own exercise, and the gymnastics bar broke, and he fell several feet to his back. And and all of these things that he was doing, he was doing maybe not gymnastics directly, but like he was, he was ministering for the gospel. He was ministering to save souls. He was in the midst of revival. He was pouring himself out for the gospel. And I think sometimes we also have to look at that and recognize like there's a time and a place to be 100% sold out, but it's also okay at times for us to step back and take a little bit of uh, do some self-care. Like I don't really love that phrase because it it comes with so many attachments and and dirty laundry from kind of like the self-care movement, but it's okay for us 
to take care of ourselves. But yes. I think what's interesting with McShane and something that we need to think about is he was living at a rather extraordinary time during during the history of the Church of Scotland. Right. He was living at a time where there was revival breaking out. There was other controversial things going on. And those are the times that we see men of God and women of God. But we're talking about preachers. So men of God who are pouring themselves out for the gospel in extraordinary ways. Right. You think about Calvin, who at the end of his life, he was being carried in and out of his pulpit in order to continue preaching to the saints in Geneva. And McShane really carries on that legacy of men who are willing to sacrifice their, their health and their body for the ministry of the gospel, even when he could have done otherwise. And, and the danger is that we look at that and we think that that's normative and that that's, that's some sort of prescription for how we are to live our lives. I don't think that's the case, but it's still, he's still an example that we should look to and see, look at how right. sold out this guy was. Look at how, right. at, you know, when we talk about him dying young, we're not talking about someone who dies at 40. We're talking about someone who died when he was 29 years old. And he, he had a more fruitful ministry than most men in our age could claim they had when they retire at 65 years old and, and you know, change over to a life of ministering on the golf course. Right. And right. that's a little bit pejorative, but like that's that's the perspective that a lot of modern people have on retirement is like, all right, I worked hard and now retirement is my time. This guy was at fif- less than 50 percent of what we consider retirement age when he died. And that was how sold out he was for the ministry of the word. Right. It, it's an amazing testimony. And I agree. I actually think, and I think this is what you're saying, but I would see like this idea of self-care and man, do I hate that phrase? Yeah. I'm with you. Like I sometimes soul care is better, but even that falls a little bit short because we were talking about the, the physical reality of who we are as well. I, I don't, I actually don't see these at odds. I think what we see here necessarily is that God called him in a unique way to this type of commitment. And you're yeah. right. It's not prescriptive, but what we see between like the sixth and the fourth commandments is certainly a sense that we ought to care for ourselves in Christ Yeah, and that to be fed is so that we might feed others. But there is a sense of coming to receive energy and rest And yet, at the same time, I think what we get from McShane that is helpful to spur us forward is a sense that, like, if our only concern, if our only hurdle in doing something for the church or for somebody else is like, well, I feel tired or that's going to make me tired or I'm going to have to give up a little bit more time, that's that's not a reasonable excuse. Yeah. And, And we should be willing to sacrifice maybe a little bit of fatigue for the sense of serving those whom we love and whom the Lord has saved. So I'm with you. Like he is an extreme example. I think he was perhaps called to that. And it's certainly not the thing that we should be leveling on everybody else. What I think is the greatest though, kind of legacy that he lives is for pastors in particular, but also I think for the layperson, is this commitment to holiness and this commitment to personal holiness for the sake of those to whom the pastor ministers. And I just want to read this one quote that Beaky uses because this, I, I haven't seen this exact quote from him, but I know that he had a strong sense that pastors need to be concerned with their own holiness. So that's the best thing and the first thing that they can give to their congregations. And that does, I think, stand somewhat juxtaposed to what we might say today is the best thing that a pastor can bring in yeah. some sense. So here's the quote. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember that you are God's sword, his instrument. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. Yeah. 
And I, I just find that to be like, that just hit me again across the face. Cause I was like, yes, like th- is that not what we want from our pastors is that we're, we're not concerned. They maybe spent the entire week trying to craft the greatest sermon or to be the best orders, but that somebody in the essence of their being is so concerned with personal holiness and following after the Lord Jesus Christ, that that's going to so saturate everything else. That of course, if you were to be the best public speaker in the world and so far from Jesus Christ, that that would be so ineffective on the Lord's day that you would prefer to have those two things reversed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good, uh, a good point for us to take from the life of McShane is even in our own life, right? When I, I think about my work at the hospital or your work at the bank, like you are brilliant when it comes to economics and finance, right? Like you, when you explain concepts to me or when you help me with financial questions, I have like, you're, you're able to do that in a winsome way that makes sense. And you're able to boil things down. That's great. And that's valuable, right? Sure. But someone, someone like yourself or, or other Christians who bring with them to their task, whatever their task is, right? We're talking specifically about the task of preaching with McShane, but for the rest of us who aren't preachers, we bring a sense of holiness and of integrity to right. our, our, you know, our common vocation that, that the world can't offer, right? When I, when I talk to a patient on the phone and I tell them something, I'm bringing a sense of integrity and honesty that may or may not be present in other people, but it's present in me in a unique way because it is driven by a desire to serve the Lord and driven by the presence of the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And that's something we can bring to our common vocation that the world can't bring. And I'll tell yes. you this, like there, people can tell that that's there. You know, I think, yes. I think like the old trope of like, people will be able to tell that something's different and they're going to ask you. And that's like, that, that doesn't happen. Like I've never in my life been asked, like, I can just tell something's a little different about you. Tell me what that <laughs> is. Like that just doesn't really happen. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an influence and an impact that does make a difference when yes. we bring with us the presence of the Holy Spirit and the the wisdom of God's law and apply it to our task. And that's that's really when you boil it down, that's what McShane is getting at, is that what the preacher brings to his congregation is his own personal holiness, not as something that he generates, but as a living embodiment of what that preacher is calling the the, the people to. Right. You can't as a leader, you can't bring your people somewhere that you yourself have not gone first. Right on. And and McShane really exemplifies that in the terms of practical piety and in terms of holiness in a way that I think is really, really awesome to read about. Yeah, I think you just opened that up in a, in a kind of uh, pretty wonderful and profound way. This goes back. I'm going to go all the way back to, I think, what was episode two. Oh, man. When we talked about vocation and you're cycling back to this idea, which I think you're right on with what McShane is saying here. I think even in that episode, I said, you know, when I have taught, so often I'll teach uh, college level economics or finance or business of some, some kind in, at a Christian college. And often what happens there, and this is the same thing that happens, I think, in many Christians' lives, is they think, well, maybe I really love theology. I, I certainly really love God. And yet God has made me, uh, he's helped me to be a doctor or an insurance agent or any number of things. I collect trash. And so the best I can hope for is to take Christian principles, and try to smuggle them into the thing that I do. And it's exactly the other way around. Of course, we're not like business people that happen to be Christians. We are Christian business people. Right. And so therefore by bringing the holiness of Jesus 
into everything that we do, we make that our priority. You're right. It does influence and change our work. Even if nobody is like, oh my goodness, like the way you behaved in this meeting or the way you had this conversation or made this phone call is so dramatically different than everybody else. Tell me, is it possible you have a relationship with a transcendent being who has loved and saved you from all eternity <laughs> past? You know, like that, that's never going to happen. I'm with you. Like nobody's ever said that to me. If anybody says to me, like, you're a little bit different. Tell me about that. They're probably not talking about something yeah. spiritual. Um, but at the same time, how many times have you done something that seems like incredibly mundane and somebody's just said, you did that exceptionally well, right. like in a really weird kind of way that it just seems like you were into it and passionate about it, or you did it with a, a sense of such a high level of commitment to that thing of doing it well and being loving. That is the holiness of God being reflected right. in the work that we do, no matter how mundane it is. And so I'm, t I'm totally with you on that. I didn't see that initially, but I'm certainly seeing that connection now that I think that that's maybe where there is a bridge for all of us. It's not just about preaching, but this idea that going back to what you said originally, that when we think about progressive sanctification, that we need to be understanding that God does this work in us. And in fact, I was recently thinking this week, some, some, I had this lucid, what I think was a lucid moment in prayer where I thought, Oh my word, like the fact that I'm a Christian right now in this setting, in this moment where I'm sitting on this chair, all of this is held together by Christ. Yeah. There's not a single thing I'm doing right now. There's no path that I'm walking in. There's no strength that I have where I'm somehow holding myself up or keeping myself on this balancing beam of, of Christianity. Everything right now, what it means for me to pray these prayers, to even think this way is because of what Christ has done and is doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we come to, I think, that kind of end, and then we say, I want to pursue holiness because God has led me in this direction, provides the strength to do that. The indicative and the imperative united together in, in perfect harmony. That I think is so radically different starting point that I actually believe that God blesses all things that come after that point. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. You know, I think, I think we under appreciate the comprehensive nature of what God calls us to. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the world talks about a calling, uh, borrowing Christian language, right? They, yes. They, they, they don't know it, but that language of a calling or a vocation, that's distinctly Christian language. It was basically invented uh, in its current application by Martin Luther, right? And so the, the, world, the world may talk about being called to something, but you can't be called to something unless there's someone or something that calls you. And right. so for us as Christians, when we talk about the holiness of our vocation, our vocation is holy, not because we as holy people are doing it or because we as holy people are called to it, but because the one who calls us to that thing is himself holiness. And right. so everything he does is a result of that holiness. So you're absolutely right that like we bring something special to everything that we do, not because we are special, but because the one who uh, indwells us and calls us is special. The one who indwells us and has transformed us and changed us is special. Right. And here, here's the difference. Let me do one more example, because this is something I'm just going to get this off my chest because this does annoy me greatly. And that is right now, to your point of this idea of 
the I'll just use the word secular because that's the easiest most people are familiar with. That. Yeah, the secular world loves to smuggle in these Christian concepts when it comes to leadership because what they've discovered, like every other thing in this entire world, that what God has ordained and God has made good, what God has set in place, is the thing that is efficacious. And so there's this term right now. It makes its way around. It's back in vogue, in vogue, especially in business. Servant leadership. Yeah. That, that's the big thing is like, you know, if you're going to be a really good leader, you got to be like a servant leader. And so I, I laugh and also cringe when I see, I've seen this fairly recently in a couple of people's profiles, LinkedIn, Twitter, somebody will actually self-identify as a servant leader <laughs> uh, <laughs> who I know is, is not a Christian. And I find that so funny because one, that is likely something that a true servant leader would, would ever do is self-identify right. in that kind of way. And second, I often think servant to whom, and you realize that our culture has totally disassociated this word servant. We don't know what servants are. Yeah. But when we go to the scriptures, we do have the proper context for it. And what we learn from the scriptures is the servant is the one that is cast aside, that has no rights, that's willing to give up everything. And that's certainly not what we're talking about most of the time when this phrase servant leadership gets thrown around. And so to your point, all I'm trying to say is the only person that could be a true servant leader is the Christian. There's no other classification. There's no other category. Yeah. Only the Christian can actually do that thing. I don't care who's written the book, what philosophy they're trying to superimpose, how successful they've been. The only person that can actually do that. And the irony, of course, is in doing that, in serving God, who is, as you said, the ultimate creator and the one to whom we owe our service, we will by default serve everybody else around us on the horizontal plane. But that can only happen by the Christian. And ironically, the Christian does it not to turn a profit or to make things more successful, but because God is loving. Yeah. And so who knows where I was even going with that. I just got annoyed because <laughs> <laughs> that concept is so thrown around. But the irony is the people who are using it for the most part are not the people who can even achieve it. And I don't know if that's a unique way for us to have an entry point in a conversation about this. I think it is in some respects, but what Robert Murray McShane here emphasizes is really this idea of setting holiness as the top priority. When that's the bottom of the, the pyramid, so to speak again, and you build everything up on top of that, man, it's going to be a, a strong foundation and a, and a strong artifice because yeah. of that foundation. Yeah. Well, I hate to say it, but we're going to have to leave this third figure on the, the annals of history here because we have pulled an Alexander Archibald or whatever and uh, can't get to our third figure because we're already at like an hour and 10 minutes, which is ridiculous. So the, the last person that Beaky talks about in this chapter is John Charles Riley or Ryle. And you're more familiar. People are more familiar with him by his uh, initials, JC Ryle. And JC, the one thing I'll say about JC Ryle, you know, I'm not super well read with Ryle, but he has this way of just penetrating to your heart in, yeah, in, for sure. in this amazing way that in his day was very foreign to Anglicanism, right? Anglicanism in, in this time frame was was very much oriented around appearances and high culture and, and high society. It was very dry and, and Ryle just was having none of that. So I would encourage people who have the book to, to go back through, make sure you read this section on Ryle because Ryle really is this figure that um, is sort of a man out of place, right? He, he doesn't really right. see like when I first started reading Ryle and then I found out he was an Anglican Bishop in the 20, you know, the, the late 19th century, the early 19th century, mid, you know, in the 19th century, I was like, 
no, 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 that can't be right. So like <laughs> take some time to read him and more so than reading this, go and look up his, uh, his tracks and his sermons and his, yes. his documentation, his work on holiness, his work on prayer, you know, you, it's not available right now. We'll have to try to find a way to get it back up. But, um, you did that reading of, J- of JC Ryle on prayer. And yeah. I'll tell you that just, that just undid me. Like I was just leveled by it because he's so clear and, and precise, but he also is very, very penetrating. So yes. I wish we could spend more time on him, but we, we just are out of time. So actually that's probably the best way to leave it because yeah. I think what people should do instead is go look up, go read. It's very quick. It's a, a short volume, a call to prayer because yeah. one of the things you'll find that Beaky takes more time to elaborate on is you kind of reference like Anglicanism is like super wordy and like really high up and kind yeah. of traditional. And he, it's almost humorous how he, JC Rao kind of references that he almost had to learn to preach again, like make yeah. your phrases shorter. Like you need to understand how your people are hearing you. And it, all you have to do is just get a copy of a call to prayer and you will experience that yeah. because he speaks so directly, so clearly, so cogently that I still think about that book a lot actually, because it just kind of messes you up it does so in the best it's one possible of the books way that, yeah it's, it's one of the books that you read and then you spend a lot of time trying to recover from it because you want to really put into practice everything that he challenged you to to think about so i actually think that's a good way to leave it is go pick up something by yeah. jc ryle that's the best way for you to learn about him not not from you and i talking about him yeah i agree well jesse we'll we won't mince words on this uh this landing here because we are already well over our time <laughs> But uh, check it out. You know, I, I want to put another quick plug in for yes. uh, the Relight app. Um, <laughs> we just I, can't help ourselves. I like, know. I had and, hoped- listen, and listen, that's a good plug. I'm with you. Like, we should do this. I just love, though, that it started with this. We're not going to mince any words in the landing. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to I, I spend more time on this because I've been spending a little bit more time working with this app and, and checking it out. But everyone should go check out Relight app it's r-e-l-i-g-h-t dot app uh it's made by uh david who is one of the hosts on the latest form of flogging and his uh wife sarah and you know the best thing you can do i want to see this app take off and i know we don't have a huge audience but our our audience is is bigger than probably most podcasts of our genre um i want to see it take off so Go to the go to the website, check it out, spend a little bit of time looking at the resources that are there, and then send send that link, send it to somebody that you know who either commonly uses an online Bible or is new to the Reformed tradition, somebody that isn't familiar with these resources, send it to them. Because, you know, this is, not only is it the Word of God, which is obviously the best resource that we have, but it's right. also all these other amazing Reformed resources, primarily the Westminster Confession, but the, the catechisms, the Geneva study notes. I mean, there's really good stuff on this site that people usually are not interacting with. So go check it out, Relight app, uh, relight.app, um, and then share it with your friends. You know, tell your pastor about it. Tell, tell, your, uh, tell your friends about it. Send it to your mailman or your, your barber <laughs> or whatever. You know, they're, they're at home, too. They got more time to check stuff out now, too. So assuming that you have your mailman or mailwoman's like email address, everybody knows everybody on Facebook these days. So really, do you know your mail person on Facebook? I know one of them. I'm not friends with them on Facebook, but I'm sure I could find them. 
Okay, well, that's just awesome right I there. also yeah. live in, in Podunk, Canaan, New Hampshire, where there's like 17 people, but... Listen, that's the promised land, literally. It is true. It is. It's a beautiful It's a beautiful place. So check it out, relight.app. Um, you're going to hear more about it from us because it not only is it a great app, but David's a great guy, and, and him and his wife are doing really good work, and we want to support that. So Jesse, do you have any last words before we crash this plane straight into the ground to get this over with. Yes. Those that last sounded words. way more, way more <laughs> fatalistic and terrible than I intended it to. Yeah. You, you should have talked about uh, murder hornets again. Yeah. My last words are this honor. Everyone love the brotherhood. Oh.